This is the ballad of Hollywood Jack and the Rage Cage. And Hollywood Jack hit the big time and went to make movies. From iHeartRadio, the Based on True Events anthology. We chronicle true events in the Hollywood tradition. That is to say, adhering to the facts, as long as the facts don't get in the way of a good story. First up, The Don, the definitive 24-episode podcast series on Hollywood producer Don Simpson. Episode 4, The Belle Du Jour of Beverly Hills. If Don needed a shot of publicity, Pierce provided the headlines. Rock star exec, Hollywood renegade, American maverick, speed freak, bad boy. Pierce made Don infamous. Every journalist in town wanted an interview. Perhaps the one interview Don came to regret was the infamous, you know what I like to do at 4 p.m.? Pour myself a whiskey, cut a few lines, and abuse a screenwriter interview. This was right after Beverly Hills Cop, when Don was the hottest producer in town. All the studios wanted to sign him to a huge deal. One would think a guy in Don's position would play things close to the vest. But Don, being Don, let it rip. Most of the interview is set up as a day in the life with the world's most successful producer. Don starts off by threatening Newsweek. Who do I have to kill over there? in response to Newsweek failing to put him on the cover next to Eddie Murphy to promote Beverly Hills Cop. Never mind that he's the producer and not the star of the movie. He then hurls a photo of his ex-girlfriend, shattering the picture frame. Don, we learn, is in a lot of pain. He's recently cracked three ribs by stabbing himself with his ski pole on a steep run in Aspen. Later, he'd tell the journalist it was five ribs. The story changes every time he tells it. He compares the pain of trying to talk with broken ribs as the equivalent of the Holocaust. Yeah, he really said that. And yet, he continues talking. To numb the pain, he takes out a bottle of whiskey and cuts a few lines of cocaine. He tells the reporter that this is his favorite thing to do at 4 p.m. He likes to pour a whiskey, cut a few lines, get on the phone, and rip a screenwriter to shreds. He then does just that, all the while wincing in pain from his broken ribs. And that's only the first few paragraphs of the article. After comparing his ski injury to the Holocaust, he then goes on to insult Steven Spielberg, excluding him from his top 10 lists of directors for Top Gun, as if Spielberg doesn't have a say in the projects he chooses. Don makes it clear, no matter who directs Top Gun or any of his movies, the real director will be Don. The script, the casting, the music, the edit, the visuals, all from the genius mind of Don Simpson. During the interview, there's a call to Don's assistant from Playgirl magazine. They've named Don one of their most eligible bachelors. Don reacts with mocking chagrin. You gotta wonder, was this Playgirl call set up to coincide with Don's interview? On the call, Don modestly states he'd need a body double, joking that Warren Beatty should be his stand-in. He goes on to say that if he was a girl, he'd fuck Warren Beatty. On top of the cocaine and the Holocaust comment and the Spielberg diss and the Warren Beatty fantasy and the threats to Newsweek, there are damning testimonials from Don's so-called friends in the business. One executive calls him a baby who wants to play with his toys for a while until he wants new toys. Babies can be cute until they piss on you. Then they're not cute at all. Mega ICM agent Jeff Berg calls him functionally psychotic. 
Don Steele, head of Paramount and his former protege, calls him a fabricator of tall tales. But the most damning quote is from Don himself. People want me, Don says. They may hate me, but they want me. That's what being a member of the club is all about. And without that, you might as well be dead. The last line strikes a chord. Was Don trying to tell us something? Would he be dead without the movies? The forecast is chillingly accurate. Don was later said to be angry over the article, not because his quotes were inaccurate, but because he spoke his mind and didn't bother to edit himself. He couldn't help it. Don was honest to a fault. Pierce vowed to protect Don from his honesty, to save Don from himself. Aside from Pierce, the two journalists closest to Don were the husband-wife writing team Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn. After Don's death, the New Yorker published Dunn's obituary on Don. In the piece, Dunn wrote of how Don's doctor had died a few months earlier. That had been bad news, Don writes. A note of foreboding. And now, Don himself was dead. Several days later, Joan and I looked at the notes of a telephone conversation we had with Don in 1992 about the reporter character in our film, Dharma Blue. He's this guy who doesn't play by the rules, doesn't play the odds, a loose cannon, Don said. He has always gambled. He's always played a lone hand, played on the edge. In retrospect, we knew Don was talking, consciously or unconsciously, about himself. Reading John Gregory Dunn's obituary opened up an old wound for Pierce. For years, Don had predicted that he would live fast, die young, and Pierce would be the one to write his legacy. But Don and Pierce had a falling out after Days of Thunder. And according to Pierce, they wouldn't speak again for another five years. But then, about a year before his death, Don reached out. Dangerous Minds with Michelle Pfeiffer had become a hit. This was the beginning of Don's big comeback. Pierce had been waiting for the call to get the exclusive, but Don only called in Pierce to rant and rave over Pierce's article on Hugh Grant. It was Don's belief that Pierce had violated the celebrity journalist code, that a respected journalist should never probe into a celebrity's private life. As we noted, Pierce had written the Hugh Grant piece in 1995, back when he was stranded in Los Angeles waiting for his editors to fly him back to England. 40 quid might have been the difference between Hugh Grant's private encounter with a streetwalker and a mugshot seen around the world. On the night Hugh Grant went cruising for company, he only had 60 quid in his pocket. For 100, he could have spent the night in Divine Brown's motel room. But for 60, they'd have to get busy in Hugh's car. And that was A-OK with Hugh. He was besotted with Divine Brown. Hot pink, he called her, a nod to her hot pink painted toenails. Divine had just had a mani-pedi that day, and her pimp was expecting good money from Divine that evening. She had no clue the Englishman and the BMW was a multi-millionaire movie star, and that was A-OK with Hugh. He rolled down the window and introduced himself as Nigel. Divine would call him Nige throughout the evening, an evening that lasted all of ten minutes. The evening may have lasted longer if it weren't for the brake lights, while Divine got busy bobbing on Hugh's Huey under the steering wheel, 
Hugh's foot tapped along on the brake pedal. The blinking lights caught the attention of a cop patrolling the strip, and that was the end of the evening for Hugh and Divine, but not the end of the story. Hugh still had to do the obligatory talk show appearances to promote his new movie, Nine Months. When the talk show Larry King suggested he go into psychoanalysis for his dirty deed, Hugh responded that admitting to his goatish behaviour was all he needed to clear his conscience. He was a naughty boy, he told America, and for that, he was sorry. The audiences went crazy for his sheepish apology. They loved him all the more for telling the truth. Meanwhile, Divine Brown was getting recognition of her own. Appearances on Howard Stern brought her paid endorsements and soft-born movie work. In a matter of months, she had made one million dollars, bought herself a Rolls-Royce and a rental in Beverly Hills. She paid her debts to her pimp and she sent her two kids to private school. This was a modern-day pretty woman fairy tale. And while Hugh didn't get his happy ending, in the end, things worked out rather nicely for Hugh and Divine. John Gregory Dunn, Joan Didion, Hugh Grant, Divine Brown, Autumn Weston, Don Simpson. Their voices were swirling around in Pierce's head as he drove through Beverly Hills looking for the address of the madam who had sent Autumn Weston's services to Robert Evans. At first glance, Pierce thought the address was some mistake. Stone Canyon Road? That's where Don lived. How convenient for Don to have his madam right down the street. I arrive at the Stone Canyon Road address. In the rear view of my rented convertible, I noticed a Mercedes parked down the street. Two middle-aged men, nondescript and inconspicuous, but for the fact they are parked outside the most notorious brothel in Los Angeles. I assume the two men will go in first, as if that is the protocol, to give right of way when you're the second party arriving at a brothel. I wait a minute. But the two men stay in their car. After a few minutes, I conclude that they are staying put. I step out of my car. At that very moment, the two men have gotten out of their car. There is an awkward high noon standoff as we stare at one another down the street. The two men then step back inside the Mercedes and one of them gives me the nod and right of way. Now, standing alone outside the brothel, I have no choice but to go in. I find a woman standing in the doorway. She looked early 20s, ethnically ambiguous, Hispanic perhaps. I notice her make eye contact with a handyman working on a broken sprinkler pipe. He returns her nod as if to say, it's okay to knock on the door. At the time, Pierce thought nothing of the exchange. He would later come to learn that the so-called handyman doubled as a scout recruiting beautiful women along the Sunset Strip to come work for the madam. I gave the woman a wide berth, unsure how to approach or whether to make conversation. As I wait for someone to answer the door, I became keenly aware that I had no invitation or references to vouch for my business, nor was I carrying any money to pay for any such business. A woman named Molly opens the door. She has rock and roll Joan Jet black hair, angular cheeks and pouty lips. 
I imagined if Mick Jagger and Charlotte Gainsbourg had a love child, she might grow up to resemble Molly. Molly quickly waves the woman in and then looks me up and down. Her mouth twists into a Cheshire grin. A warm invitation or disingenuous derision, I wasn't sure. Perhaps it's simply standard greeting for a new John visiting the brothel. She gestures for me to step inside. I'll wait in the foyer alongside the woman that I just met at the door. Molly prompts me to follow her upstairs to Cora's bedroom. I smell something vaguely like French perfume. As we descend the stairs, a swarm of Persian cats nip at my ankles, their tiny teeth tearing through my suit trousers. I frantically shake them off. I hear Molly chuckling behind me. I enter Cora's bedroom. Her maid brings in tea on a tray. Cora lies in a nightgown, propped up in bed, speaking on one of her six telephones. I recognise the language. I was once hospitalised for gout under care of Filipino nurses. She's speaking Tagolog. The cats launch onto Cora's bed, vying for her attention. Molly serves them lunch. I see the tea set isn't intended for me. Molly empties a takeout container of locks from Barney's Greengrass and serves the cats on fine china. Cora takes another call, this time in English. Pierce is now recording with the device in his pocket, ten feet away from the infamous Madame Cora lying in her bed. Well, nobody wants a hairy twat. My girls are shaped. Pandering is the criminal charge for hustling call girls. It's also an apt description of Madame Cora. Poor you. Two fantastic 19-year-olds, volleyball girls from Orange County, ready to travel. I can get them on the plane tomorrow, in time for a blowjob and a late dinner. You figure out your schedule. Call your travel agent. She hung up the phone. She stroked one of her cats and assessed the sunburnt English gentleman seated by the foot of her bed. She appeared to be racking her memory, trying to figure out where she may know him from. Young guns, after party. You drank too much. Don and I called you a cab. She remembered him from a party eight years ago. And, in fact, he did drink too much. It was one of those premiere parties where the waiters always seemed to be reappearing with a fresh drink. Don had asked Pierce to attend so he would write a profile on his acting performance in Young Guns 2. Don was set to play one of the Pinkerton men. The role proved to be another acting disappointment. His character wasn't given a name. He's listed in the credits only as Pinkerton Man. Pierce then started to explain how he showed up at the wrong funeral. I wasn't invited. I would have liked to pay my respects. Cora spoke of how she and Don had many conversations about death. Don was never going to die old. I was never going to die fat. Pierce laughed uncomfortably. Later, he would admit he was intimidated by this petite woman in her nightgown stroking her cats. There was an awkward beat. Here was Pierce's chance to ask her about her connection to Autumn Weston. When I was 12, living in the Philippines... But instead, and without prompting, Cora launches into her life story. I opened my front door to a Japanese soldier pointing a bayonet at my chest. The soldiers locked me and my family in the house and set it on fire. We escaped through a window. Never again was I scared of death. Cora describes how her family moved to San Francisco and how she ran away to live with a group of priests. I cooked the food. 
I do the laundry. I realize I love to play house. One day, I'm walking to the Castro and get caught in a crowd of women marched topless in front of exotic movie cinema. This was the first erotic cinema festival in San Francisco. At the time, a young councilwoman named Diane Feinstein was trying to make a political name for herself in trying to shut down the festival. Many of the filmmakers and the backers of this festival say that the films they are now making and the ones particularly in the festival are not pornographic but are art films. What do you well, say to that? Well, this may be, and uh, I, I cannot say that this is not the case. Uh, I think uh, uh, that those films that were what I would call the soft core pornography at this point in time that are done with some amount of taste and are done with some standards and plot uh, are in one area. The thing that I regret, Mr. Williams, is that this whole field is jeopardized right now because of the irresponsibility of certain money-hungry people. All these women protest with their boobs hanging out, while this one guy in the middle is handing out pliers. Bolanganga Poe, San Elmo, he was a ball of fire. And no shame. If you want to protect free speech, buy a ticket, watch erotic movies. She learned later the guy was Don Simpson. They were in San Francisco at the same time. His promotions got the festival attention and national news that would lead to a free speech case that would go all the way to the Supreme Court. This would be the first of Don's many Forrest Gump-style brushes with political history. Coincidentally, both of us moved to Los Angeles at the same time. I marry, have two kids, then my husband walks out on me. I go work at the flower shop in the Ambassador Hotel, where they killed Kennedy's brother. I was good with flowers. I matched the bouquet to the customer's request. And then I make up sell for nicer flowers. Good training for my present profession. One day, a wealthy British lady came in and ordered yellow roses. I tell her, yellow roses not good enough for such an occasion. The woman says I'm the right person to take over her business. I say, what business she in? She makes offer to me to buy her black book. The black book contained listings of prostitutes and clients. She's retiring, and it's mine for five thousand dollars. The next day, my mother passes away, and my fiancé dies of heart attack. Both same day. I take it as a sign. I need to make big change in my life. I call up woman. I buy her book. Half the men in the book are dead. Other half, geriatric. And the girls are hacks. It takes three years to build the business from scratch. Around this time, Don was trying to find work at Paramount. I always tease him. I got the mansion first. When he saw my house, he wanted house nearby. That's how we became neighbors. We talk all the time. I was like the mother, the shrink, the business advisor, all rolled into one. Cora told a story about how she provided intel on a famous actor. When he is trying to green light on American Gigalo, he worry about losing Richard Gere for lead. The studio wants Travolta. 
I have a client who goes to Travolta Scientology meeting. Travolta says the script is too gay and how it can ruin his image. Imagine that, too gay. Cora told Don that Travolta was backing out. He was going to lose his start date. Don called Barry Diller. Travolta was out. They need to make an offer to give by Friday or they lose the movie. This is the kind of Hollywood movie information only I know. After that, Don always go to me for information. But my information much bigger than Hollywood. That's why I have seven phones on my bed. I know everything going on in L.A. On the politicians, the cops, the judges, the sports guys. I know secrets. So, what do you think? Do you want to write my book? It's a great book. No. Poor Filipino girl becomes powerful Hollywood madam. That's a story, no? They were interrupted by the sudden appearance of the woman Pierce had seen earlier making eye contact with the handyman. Pierce attempted to excuse himself, but Cora insisted he stay for the job interview. Good material, she says, for the book. From the tapes, we were only able to render Cora's half of the conversation. How old are you? What's your name? Did you go to college? Lift up your shirt. I need to see them. Show me your ass. Lift up your skirt. Are you worried about him? I don't worry. He's all right there. Don't be shy. Imagine you're in a blocker room. You just have a workout. This back and forth went on for several minutes, with Cora impatiently demanding the woman to reveal herself and the woman politely declining. Cora then abruptly leaves the bedroom. Pierce asked Molly where she was going. Molly points to the window. Cora has confronted the two mustached men seen earlier in the Mercedes. Pierce would later learn they were LAPD vice squad. With Cora gone, Molly seized the opportunity to savage her employer. She was a lousy businesswoman, too nice to her girls. Her brothel was a pretty woman fantasy land for girls to make some money before moving on to better opportunities. If Molly were running the business, she'd hold her girls on a tight leash. She'd keep them ragged, rough around the edges, desperate. Molly's tone had become nasty. She references some of the Arab clients and the mysterious disappearance of a girl named Courtney Washington, a volleyball player from Laguna who flew on a private jet to the Middle East and never returned. Cora has now returned from talking to the cops. She's in a state of duress. I keep L.A. Vice murder suspects, drug dealers. Last year, a terrorist threat. Without me, there is no LAPD organized crime and intelligent unit. Now they're trying to shake me down? For over 20 years, Cora had an immunity arrangement with the LAPD. She would run her business in exchange for providing the police with criminal intelligence. Cora suddenly looked to Pierce with suspicion. Was it a coincidence that the vice squad was camped outside at the very moment Pierce decided to drop in for a chat? And what of Don, Cora says. He dies three days ago under suspicious circumstances, and now Vice Squad is watching his madam's every move? Pierce tries to assure Cora he has nothing to do with the Vice Squad. He tries to shift the conversation, wondering aloud if perhaps Don was seeing prostitutes outside of Cora's girls. Maybe. I'm not the only madam in town. Pierce, now in investigative journalist mode, wondered if perhaps this new madam supplied girls that would engage Don in rough play. 
he notes the sex toys he found in Don's house, and if, perhaps, rough play contributed to Don's death. Cora can only speak for her own. No, no rough play with my girls. He was a gentleman with my girls. The thing about Don was he had a very unhealthy self-esteem. He never dated. He was too afraid of rejection. Once he put an ad in the classifieds for a date, he was very shy, very hard on himself. I can write a whole chapter on Don in my book, The Producer and the Madame. So, you want to write it? It's a fascinating story, Pierce tells her. He'd like to give it some thought. It's a moneymaker. Come back and see me tomorrow. I'll tell you everything. Pierce, realizing his time is up, makes a last-ditch effort to bring up Autumn Weston. Cora doesn't recognize the name. Maybe she worked under an alias, Pierce offers. Cora replies, No Autumn Weston here. She knows everything about her girls. No secrets. Pierce will later find out that this is not the case. Pierce exits Cora's house and returns to his car. At the roundabout at Bellagio Road, Pierce sees the two undercover vice squad cops in their Mercedes. Pierce slows down for a better look. The cops are speaking with the woman who just left Madame Cora's. The cops look over at Pierce. His heart is racing. Do they recognize him? Will they pull him over? Pierce drives away slowly. He checks his rearview mirror for flashing lights. Listen to The Don on the iHeartRadio Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 4 Disclaimers John Gregory Dunn, the husband of Joan Didion, actually did write a semi-flattering obituary about working with Don. Don put the famous literary couple through dozens of drafts on a big UFO idea that Don had hatched in hopes it would become his next big blockbuster. The movie was never made. The majority of Don's press coverage was less favorable. Often, the damage was self-inflicted. He was candid about his vices and transparent about his insecurities. The infamous interview where Don tells the journalist Lynn Hirschberg, you know what I like to do at 4 p.m.? I like to pour myself a whiskey, cut a few lines, and get on the phone and abuse a screenwriter, was printed word for word. When it came to the press, Don always seemed to be his own worst enemy. What Don would have loved was a journalist like Pierce to fawn over his achievements and credit him for a film's success. Disclaimer 2. Pierce obviously never wrote about Hugh Grant, but the Hugh Grant story where he got busted in his car with the prostitute Divine Brown is true. According to the Daily Mail, the cops, upon seeing the flashing brake lights, were laughing as they approached the car. If only Hugh had been carrying enough cash to take his business to a hotel room. Which leads us to Don's beloved Madame. In our story, she is the fictionalized Madame Cora, based on the real-life Madame Alex. It is true that Alex lived just a few blocks from Don on Stone Canyon Road. They were more than neighbors. They were friends who loved to trade gossip and intel on deal-making around town. You could imagine Don lying on the couch in Alex's French boudoir, downloading his showbiz woes. Don would often send Alex flowers and gifts from Tiffany's. Madame Alex would send him girls. What struck Alex was how insecure Don could be. He was often nervous before meeting one of her girls. According to Joe Esterhaus, he would spend the night trying to woo them as if somehow the money wasn't enough incentive for physical contact. We don't know when Don and Alex had their falling out. We assume it was around the time of Madame Alex's bust by the vice squad. 
We fictionalize the timeline between Don's death and Alex's arrest. Our wag-the-dog theory that the investigation was some sort of distraction from Don's death is fabrication. The arrest happened years before Don's death. Nevertheless, the timing of her arrest was strange and suspicious. For 20 years, Alex was the top informant for LAPD. She reportedly gave them murder suspects, drug dealers, even potential terrorist threats. So why, after a 20-year immunity arrangement, did they suddenly decide it was time to take her down? 